0: Hello, Brent. Hello, Angela. Hey, Caroline. <laughs> hello, Caroline. You know me, but our listeners don't know me because I'm usually not on the microphone. So, hello, listeners.
1: Caroline,
2: you are usually directing us, producing us, making us sound way smarter than we actually are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> She's the brains of this outfit. Hey, it's a, it takes a team. <laughs> no, you give yourself much more credit. Oh, my
0: gosh. We're happy to have you on. I'm happy to be here. I have a question that came up because, and I I think maybe both of you know this, that I, uh, I had someone close to me uh, pass away uh, late mm-hmm. last year. And so mm-hmm. in the wake of that, some, something came up that I thought might be an interesting conversation for us to have. Okay, I want to respect this person's privacy, and I won't say everything that, uh, that happened that, that sort of led me to this question. But basically... It happened very quickly that they passed away and not a lot of plans were made about uh, what happens to their digital life. Do you guys know what happens after you die to your data?
1: No, not really. I don't know when our data actually expires. No pun
0: intended. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And how should it? When should it expire?
2: This is Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. We're your hosts. I'm Brent Simoneau. And I'm Angela Andrews. We're here to break down questions from the tech industry big, small,
1: and sometimes strange. Each episode, we go out in search of answers from Red Hatters and people they're connected to.
2: Today's question
1: When should data die? Producer Caroline Craighead is here with our story.
0: So, when we say "data, that actually can mean all kinds of different things I,
2: I mean, the first thing that I think about is social media accounts you know like my my Instagram account, but it's not just social media, right?
0: No, I mean there's like also your
1: email account uh, mm. And your bank records, all of your financial
0: transactions out there. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. There's all kinds of GPS records, you know, anything Mm -hmm. that we're leaving behind that we create in our digital lives. Some things super sensitive that we think about a lot and some things that don't matter to us and we never think about. So. There's the idea of what should happen to our data when we die and that we can all think about on a personal level. But also, you know, as people who work in IT, uh, it's interesting to think about it from that perspective as people who are setting this kind of policy or who should be dealing with, like, what does my data management practice look like with a view to people not being around anymore? or Even, you know, short of that, just once I'm finished with it. What's the appropriate time and way to get rid of data? So to get into this, I wanted to sort of go outside of tech first, and I talked to Patrick Stokes.
3: I'm Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm a philosopher of death and personal identity, among other things.
0: Are you guys as excited as I was to hear from a philosopher of death? Uh, yes.
2: (laughs) You know I'm in. (laughs)
0: So I asked him, what does he think should happen to a person's data when they die?
2: We're
3: defaulting to treating the digital assets of the dead or treating the digital um, traces of the dead as being essentially just a a slightly exotic form of property. And therefore, who gets to say uh, what you do with that property or what can be done with that property would be the same as... um, Ultimately, there's an answer that can be found through just looking at property law and inheritance law and copyright law. I don't think that's going to be adequate, though. I think that we need to start taking the idea of digital remains seriously.
2: Help me out here, Caroline, because he's saying that traditionally we think of people's data as property. It's something that you own, right, Mm -hmm. or that someone else can own. But he's saying we need to think of them as remains, I think the difference there is like remains are like a part of you, right? So is is he saying that your data is a part of you?
0: Absolutely, yeah. So we think about people as, you know, just who we see, like a person, right? Like whatever is contained in your body is you. That's your identity. But he explores this idea of soft selves, meaning outside of the body, we are also our relationships. We are, you know, our creations. We are how we interact with the world as much as we are the physical body that exists in the world.
2: So we are not just sacks of meat right we're not just like (laughs) skin bags (laughs) right i
0: love this conversation we are
2: (laughs) we are our connections to other things we're sort of a totality of this network that we've built Mm -hmm. and that it also includes things like things that we've created and things like our
0: data you're absolutely right brent like this is something that we have to think about in terms of it being a part of you as a person here he explains it a little better
3: you know, when your, you know, your great aunt dies, you might inherit her house and you might inherit her car and you might inherit her pet
2: tortoise, but you don't inherit her corpse. So many people are online now, like so many people have digital lives in a way that hundreds of years ago, if you passed away, like nobody may know that you existed ever
0: do we prefer that? (laughs) Like, should people just pass away completely? Or should we preserve as much as we can in order to analyze or just, you know, be able to pass on to generations into the future this is what life was like, you know, back in 2022? If that's your prerogative, the more the merrier, you know? So what you're saying is our footprint should remain
1: so future generations can marvel at the amazing food pictures that i took on instagram when i'm <laughs> when i'm you know 6 feet under and i've been gone for 20 years like but why yeah like,
0: great question <laughs> i think there's a lot of gray area and and saying either like yep when someone dies all of their data goes with them is probably not the model that we want yeah but then also on the other side if we keep everything there's not any reasonable expectation that we'd be able to deal with that much data in the future. There becomes a diminishing returns uh, equation with the usefulness of literally everything sticking around forever. I want to bring in Patrick as he he sort of parses this a little bit.
3: I think there is actually a moral imperative to preserve the dead. So there needs to be some sort of Serious discussion about how we do that, how we do it in a sustainable way, how we ensure access to it, but also who gets that kind of access, how we preserve the privacy rights of the dead, and who foots the bill.
0: That's a big question, right?
3: Oh, yeah.
1: Who foots the bill? Like, who's going to keep playing, you know? Maybe I yeah. do want to keep my, my website up, right? Who wants to keep paying my, my hosting services or something?
0: That's right. That's something that certainly gets flipped from, you know, when we're alive and can make those decisions and when we're, you know, gone and can't. Mm-hmm. And it gets flipped when the data is owned by not us. <laughs> so, you know, with social media companies, they're the ones who are paying for the server space, et cetera, to keep data around or they're paying for the cost to delete it. Here's Patrick again.
3: So in 2009, in his really fantastic book on forgetting and deleting, Victor Meyer Schoenberger noted that the point had already been passed where the cost of digital storage media was less than the average wage, which meant that basically it was cheaper to buy more storage space than it is to hire someone to sit there working out what to keep and what to delete. So the default then shifts from forgetting to remembering.
0: You know, a person's publicly available data persisting after it's relevant or after the person has any ability to control it, it gets dicey, you know, and it can't just be up to the companies who store and own that data what the best time is for it to go based on their bottom line. Patrick says that we really need to be engaging with this notion of digital personhood and to adopt this stewardship approach rather than ownership when it comes to making these decisions about personal data.
3: And it's only once we've really engaged with that notion that I think we're going to be able to see what kinds of safeguards and duties and, and protections the dead are, are going to need if we're going to, to steward them through this uh, environment in which they persist electrically, potentially forever. But probably more like for five years, because as I say, is really... I mean, it's something you can talk to Carl about too, right? I mean, Carl's done fantastic work on, you know, what happens if these tech giants go under? Wait, who's Carl?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great question. (laughs) I'll let Carl introduce himself.
4: My name is Carl Erman. I'm I'm a researcher at the Department of Government in Uppsala University, Sweden, where I'm mainly researching AI and political communication, but I also have a longstanding interest in digital preservation and uh, digital human remains.
0: Digital remains again. Can you see why he was brought into this conversation? (laughs) Yes, it's a theme. Patrick brought him up in referring to this question of what happens when tech giants, you know, we're talking about social media companies and Mm -hmm. anyone else who's a big repository of data, what happens when they go under? So I asked him what he had to say about that.
4: Generally, it's not the case in every country, but generally, dead people have zero data protection rights. You can do whatever you want, you can sell them, you can disclose them and so on. So the, the the big disaster that I'm sort of waiting for, the ticking bomb, is that one of these tech giants will go bust, you know, they will go bankrupt and there will be an insolvency administrator that comes in, starts selling off all the valuable assets. And what are the valuable assets in this case? Well, it's people's data. And I could think of several nefarious actors who would be interested in in, in purchasing such data. Wow. Well, it's an interesting thought experiment, right?
2: Like what, what does happen if one of these tech giants goes under?
0: Part of why that's such a scary idea is because the way we understand it right now, right? Like they are the keepers of that data. They are the owners of that data. And if they own it, rather than our stewards of it, then they can just sell it. (laughs) Or that, you know, it's just an asset that gets liquidated in the event of a company going under.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, data is very lucrative. You know, the data Mm -hmm. of living people, dead people, all one in the same. But it does have some moral implications that someone is making money off of someone who has passed away. That, to me, feels like it should be addressed. So, Maybe this is something that we should start talking about because you want to start thinking about, you know, what am I going to do with all of these sites and all of this information? You know, who am I going to put in charge of it? And, and what what rights or responsibilities do the companies have? How easy are they going to make it for the people that I've left in charge of my digital remains. <laughs> I, can't, I can't stop yeah. laughing when I say that. But how easy or difficult are they going to make it, right? So maybe we need to start again. This conversation has to be had. Thank you, Caroline.
0: Yeah, not just by the companies. Exactly. Dr. Yeah. Oman agrees with you.
4: When we decide who, who do we delete and who do we preserve for posterity, that shouldn't solely be a question of whose data can we make money on? Because if we view it solely as, a, uh, as an economic matter, we're going to end up with historical records that are extremely skewed uh, in terms of whose data actually makes it to posterity and, and to future generations.
1: Ooh, more ethical implications.
4: Yeah, this is what I was just
2: thinking about. It's, I don't know how to say this delicately, but like stewardship is a lucrative Right? Right. <laughs> like, right. Like if you were just thinking about money and if you were just thinking about profit, as a lot of corporations tend to do, right, like that's going to lead you to certain decisions about how data is remembered or forgotten.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. And that's gonna lead to a skewed historical record, right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. And that's something that actually Patrick, who we heard from first, uh, he put it well.
3: You know, the, the rich and the famous and the powerful were the ones who left behind the portraits and the writing and the, you know, physical memorials. You know, if you go back and try and find your ancestors' graves, it helps if they had money, if you're going to actually find it.
0: You know, so if we're going to be thinking ethically about this, about what, you know, what should remain and who should make those decisions, it's we want to try to think about influences outside of money. But just as you said, Brent, like that's uh, that's pushing a boulder uphill. That's not necessarily uh, (laughs) uh, it's not lucrative. So I wanted to get back to Carl and thinking about this problem of corporate interests being the deciding factor in preserving or deleting data after the person that the data is tied to has died.
4: So if you think about what the monetization of dead people's data really are about, it's a kind of monetization of their their digital corpses if you will and if you run by that analogy we really already have an industry that does that which is archaeological and medical museums and so i've suggested in my research that perhaps an interesting ethical model to look at would be how do those museums manage their collections? How do they decide as they include new artifacts and objects into their their, uh, collections, you know, what stays and what goes? I think sometimes, you know, when we
2: are making decisions about what to do or how to proceed in the tech industry, these are technical discussions, right? It's about what is technically possible. Mm -hmm. And they are also business discussions as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so the the disciplines that we draw on are sort of economic, business, right? Mm -hmm. And technical. But what I hear him saying is that we should have more disciplines at the table when Mm -hmm. having these discussions. So people like religious leaders, people like philosophers.
0: Ethicists. Yeah. Ethicists too, yeah. Yeah. -hmm. Yeah, archivists, people who are thinking about history. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we started by thinking about it as, like, oh, what am I doing with my data? You know, and what happens to my data when I die? But as Dr. Oman says, we need to be thinking about it not just uh, in a personal way, but through this sort of multifaceted lens.
4: Try to think about it also as a collective matter. What will happen to our data when we die? What kind of society do you want to leave behind? What kind of society do you want to make possible? Because whomever inherits your data or whomever is going to be the custodian of your data will also wield the power of that archive. We should try to think about these matters not only as... Personal matters, but as as collective and and political questions that we will need to solve together.
2: It is interesting that we're calling it an archive. Hmm.
0: Yeah, we've sort of defaulted to that now. What would you suggest exactly? You well, I think
2: generally, like we tend to think of them as data sets, right? Or we tend to think of them as like databases. Yeah,
0: I guess for me, I'm thinking about it as an archive because of. Uh, sort of where dr. Oman is suggesting that yeah. we look to for uh, for similar models mm-hmm. exactly museums exactly yeah
4: it would be really interesting to also see collaborations for instance with um, National Archives I know in, in NGOs such as the Internet Archive Um in uh, 2010 twitter actually decided to donate their entire archive of tweets to the library of congress which i think is a really interesting initiative and i would love to see more such initiatives of tech companies realizing what massive resources they actually have and trying to actively share that with experts who may have different kinds of know-how but also different perspectives on what kind of data would be valuable to preserve uh, for posterity?
1: But again, that doesn't take into account the needs or the wants of that digital person, should they pass. Yeah, and the people responsible for them, right? It doesn't take into that into account. It takes the more historical approach where. Twitter has actually donated my dog's tweets, like, if you think about it that way, to the Library of Congress. Like, who's to say that someone wants their dog's tweets to be sent to the Library of Congress? I'm making jokes. But you you see what I'm saying? Like, the way he's speaking about it, it takes it away from the individual.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't mean that that individual perspective doesn't exist and in fact yeah it is just like an illustration of how this is also very complicated in <laughs> terms of weighing the interests right yeah so you know when we're talking about how companies think about data and bringing that perspective into the conversation i went ahead and talked to somebody who has a lot of experience with data management
5: My name is Jamie Steele. I'm a data consultant in the advisory services team here at Version 1. And I've got a long history of data management. I've worked in the healthcare industry, uh, logistics, uh, local and central government exhibitions, um, and financial services. I've hoarded data, I've purged and deleted data, I've protected data, and I've monetized data.
1: Kind of covers all our bases here, right? Right? (laughs) He's done all the things with the data.
2: (laughs) To be clear, like, version one is the name of the company he works for.
0: Yeah, that's right. Version one works with a lot of uh, public sector, private sector clients. But yeah, his particular job is to consult on the data policies that their customers have. And it's, as you might imagine from our discussion so far, not so straightforward. I wanted to get his take on this concept of stewardship that we've been talking about.
5: Mm. We at version one, we we talk of data maturity, that is the level of sophistication and understanding of the data management responsibilities that organization has. And in our business, you'll hear about the data management body of knowledge framework from the DAMA, DAMA. and this covers 11 subject matter domains. And and the ones I've called out uh, in particular relating to our conversation are data governance, master data management, data security, and data modeling. Okay, break that down for us, Caroline.
0: Yeah, that was a lot right there. He's saying that It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of approach to data management. And in fact, you know, you can have very complicated trees of decision-making in Mm. terms of, you know, any particular data point. How does it get handled? Maybe some need to expire sooner than others. Maybe some are a security risk where others aren't. And so how a company is set up in terms of handling that data ranges in sophistication. So what version one does is Jamie and his colleagues will work with an organization to try to get them from where they might be failing there or where they're not integrating all of these uh, different inputs in how they're managing data and uh, help them to get to a more sophisticated place. The data management body of knowledge framework is a bunch of experts from these different disciplines have come together and determined here are the ways that these are like the best practices in terms of data management. And it's broken down by, mm. as Jamie said, these 11 different knowledge areas. So when this comes into play or why this comes into play is because there's this phenomenon of uh, where companies will push forward without thinking about the data lifecycle in terms of all of these different factors they need to consider up until it comes up. So it kind of goes like this.
5: The minimum viable product is, is released The application is operational and it's earning revenue, and the regulations give us a two-year time frame. say. So we'll we'll revisit that problem later. And of course, those discussions get kicked further and further down the road. We are really good at avoiding these problems. (laughs) Uh, At some point down the line, you are gonna have to come back and look at the data that you have in your organization, uh, the, the asset that you're maintaining, and you're gonna have to assess whether you should still have that data. And that's going to be regulatory related, it's going to be uh, enforcement related, maybe moral, but you're going to have to come to a decision about what you do to purge, remove, delete, or depending on the circumstance, retain and archive that information. And what what companies don't want to get themselves in the position of is having to do that in an ad hoc way.
0: Having someone like version one come in and do a, an audit based on this data management body of knowledge, that helps to see where the blind spots may be because as we know, most organizations will just keep moving forward at the pace that best serves the organization. And you know, data management is part of those sort of unwieldy systems that need to be baked into the operations of of a company. And it's maybe not the most cost-effective thing to have to slow down and integrate fully, but it's very important to do that.
2: So, Caroline, let me throw this to you. Yeah. Like, what is the most important thing that you learned from Jamie?
0: I mean, I was delighted to hear that this, there is a model that exists for assessing, you know, whether you're thinking about handling data in the appropriate way as an organization and that there's resources to and best practices that you can look to. But it's really complicated. You know, there could be yeah. contradictions, exactly, and interdependencies. And and so a particular data point or data set needs to sort of be filtered through a lot of these different perspectives in order to assess the way to handle it. And so if we think about that from a uh, operations standpoint, like, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, what Jamie said is that this is definitely something where automation helps. However, it's not so straightforward.
5: Mm. The process to remove, retain, and archive that information in an automated way without human assessment and confirmation is not really appropriate for a a third-party tool. It's hard to define 100% consistent and appropriate rules for every scenario to drive such automation.
0: Automation makes it possible, makes it efficient, but you still need to have experts and real people looking over these these automated systems and and handling it. It's hard to automate stewardship, I guess I should say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. But with
1: any type of automation tool, you have to tune it so it mm-hmm. actually recognizes what you're trying to catch, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So it might take a lot of fine tuning, but someone there's a human being involved that's going to have to make those judgment calls. Mm
0: -hmm. But again, as I said, you know, it is kind of a relief to hear that uh, we're not as rudderless as we may have thought from hearing from (laughs) our previous two guests about industry barreling forward and leaving these considerations in the dust. There is this framework that that we can reference.
5: What allows people like ourselves to do is is focus in on the areas that require improvement and leaping from a, a score of one to a score of five well that's that's not a trivial thing to do that's probably six months minimum but more likely that's that's years of effort required to to change the situation within that organization because it's not just improving the data, itself it's improving the processes and the handling and the uh, governance it's a big transformation in some cases
2: so let's return to our original question when should data die i think the answer is it depends
1: (laughs) that's the answer (laughs) but is that correct
0: I mean that's what I my, my big takeaway is here there are a lot of different perspectives to take in into consideration yeah. and that there's a lot of different factors that are considered but the practice of integrating uh, and assessing all of these different perspectives or even enough different perspectives is something that is difficult to do. And as you said, Brent, that doesn't really help the bottom line necessarily in a short term. You know, if we're looking at it from a short term perspective, it's tough to do. It's tough to make that a priority. But I think if we look at it in a more uh, humanistic way of like that data means something about us, that it is part of us and that we have a like a custodial responsibility responsibility and that we should, mm. you know, think of what we do with data as stewards of that data that really takes it out of this framework of thinking about it as just stuff that we you need until we don't. And it is something that we have to really take into consideration and make sure that we are treating with a degree of maturity when mm-hmm. we are running an organization that, that deals with people's data.
2: Angela, I'm, I'm curious what you are thinking from an IT practitioner's perspective. Like, how are you reacting to all this? And does this
1: affect sort of your day-to-day life in any way? My previous life, yes. I was responsible for data, file servers, mm-hmm. mail servers. I, that was a huge part of my job, how long we kept things. And after listening to our three guests... I've come to realize that the nature of the data really matters. How sensitive is it? And of course, when we're dealing with personally identifiable information, you know, what laws govern that data? I think all of those things really need to be considered. When we're talking about how this digital person's remains are handled. I think all of that needs to be taken into consideration. I mean, mm. these companies are responsible for protecting and holding on to this data. Yeah. They're even footing the bill, right? For for maintaining it. Mm.
0: But honestly, they're also making money off yeah. of that data. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Angela. You're talking about the business side of it and obviously we talked a lot in this episode about the ethical side of it and I think here is where the technology itself actually enables us through automation to take this multifaceted look at each point of data and to decide what should happen with it so the technology though it feels more distant from the you know human (laughs) part of this actually is what allows us to take a more humane approach.
2: Yeah, it's like automation can help us be better stewards of data at scale.
0: That's right. Right? Stewardship (laughs) at scale. You heard it here first. There you go.
1: (laughs) And that does it for this episode of Compiler. Today's episode was produced
2: by the one and only Caroline Craighead. Victoria Lawton is our trusty steward.
1: Our audio engineer is Elizabeth Hart. Special thanks to Sean Cole. Our theme song was composed by Mary Anchetta. Chetta.
2: Big thank you to our guests, Patrick Stokes, Dr. Carl Oman, and Jamie Steele. And we also want to extend a big thanks to friend of the show, Varvara Tishkova.
1: Our audio team includes Lee Day, Stephanie Wanderlick, Mike Esser, Laura Barnes, Claire Allison, Nick Burns, Aaron Williamson, Karen King, Boo Boo House, Rachel Ertel, Mike Compton, Ocean Matthews, and Laura Walters. If you like
2: today's episode, please follow us, rate the show, and even, you know, leave us a review. It really does help the show.
1: Thanks for listening.
2: All right. We'll see you next time. Hi. I'm Mike Ferris, Chief Strategy Officer. I've been a Red Hatter for about 25 years. And before your episode starts, I want to talk a bit about AI. The hot topic right now is foundation models. And those are important, but at Red Hat, we see them just a piece of the larger AI infrastructure. And here's what I mean by that. Enterprises are built of hundreds or even thousands of applications. It's not hard to imagine a future in which those applications are being served by hundreds or thousands of models. Without a common platform for your data scientists and developers, without a way to simplify some really complex workflows as you train, tune, serve, and monitor models, it can get overwhelming pretty quickly. And that's why we've built Red Hat OpenShift AI, a platform where everyone is working together on the same page to build and deploy AI models and applications with transparency and
5: control. Find out how at redhat.com.